0: God, Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. There, there is no doubting that. That's just true. Uh, you've seen fit in history past, even given our sin to send Christ for us as a sacrifice so that we might be forgiven and brought to you. And then you've given us your Holy Spirit. As Ephesians 1, three says, then we've had every blessing, every spiritual blessing given to us in the heavenlies in Christ. We have your word that tells us cogent truth about who you are, God. We are blessed beyond measure. And so as we talk about some of the difficult things, Lord, going on in our lives right now with this economy and the effect that it's had on, on many, many people, including us, I pray, God, that you might help us understand you rightly and uh, some things that you might be up to uh, in this world of ours. So give us wisdom, we pray. May your word guide us into the truth that you have for us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. So as I mentioned, we're talking about God and the economy. God and the economy. Not, as I said last week, the economy with a little bit of God talk thrown in, but we're talking about who God is, where God is and what He might be up to given our massive economic downturn. And I find that quite a few people are interested uh, in all of this. I mean, we watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox. We read the Arizona Republic or the Wall Street Journal. We talk regularly with those at work around the water cooler or with our family at dinner. And as a result, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've even developed an entirely new language to talk about our economy. I mean, words like stimulus, bailout, new jobless claims, credit crunch, were not a part of our vocabulary just one year ago. But now these words are everyday phrases that we use to talk about the world around us. I mean, truly, folks, you and I have been jettisoned into a discussion of our economy, a reality of our our economy that is unprecedented for most of us in our lifetime. And so in the midst of all this, we can't help but wonder, where is God? Where is God? What does he think about all of this mess? And is he up to something, anything, in and through it all? These are good questions for us to ask, good questions to try to find some answers to. And so last week we began by establishing the fact that much of what is happening in our, in, in, in our economy can be pinned on the machinations of a fallen world that if you wanted to understand theologically and biblically why all this is happening to us right now, really you have to go all the way back to the fact that we live in a fallen world and that there are many times that bad things happen, even systemically rooted in culture and society to good-hearted and well-meaning people. In other words, why is all this happening? It's the fall. We need to go back to that. It's the fact that our world is imperfect and fallen things happen. And so you might remember I gave you, as an example, uh, the example of a car. I mean, just think about it. A metal contraption that we invented sitting on 20 to 30 gallons of highly flammable liquid capable of going 60 to 90 miles per hour on a concrete or an asphalt surface. And as good as these things are, they do crash now and then. Why? Because they're made by fallen people and they're driven by fallen people. And when they do crash, we don't blame God for crying out loud. We chalk it up to a fallen world and the things that we have invented. So why do cars fail? Because of the fall. Or, or take, as I gave you the example of food, take some of the food that we eat. Lay's potato chips. Remember I mentioned that? Made from potatoes, good, but partially hydrogenated soybean oil, bad. Bad. As one guy said to me this week, it's like putting plastic in your arteries. And so if you're in the habit of eating Lay's potato chips all of your lives, as well as a steady diet of cob salad from the Claim Jumper and enchiladas from Ajo Al's and shepherd's pie at the Cheesecake Factory, I'm familiar with all three of those dishes. <laughs> and then you have to have multiple stents put in. By the time you're 50, you don't blame God. Amen. You blame a fallen world and your own fallen decision-making when it comes to the things that you eat. I mean, folks, please see this. This is Bible 101. It's life in a fallen and sinful world. It says use at your own risk. And so as we noted last last week, the economy is no different. I mean, America has experienced one of the most powerful, workable, life-enhancing economies ever known to humankind. I mean, it's been a wonderful friend to most Americans for at least a century now, but it has fallen. And it's developed by fallen men and women. And so like a nice luxury car that's capable of taking you from here to San Diego in less than six hours, but also has the capacity to crash and create a lot of pain in your life, that's been our economy and that's why many of us are experiencing what we're experiencing now the theological biblical answer as to why an economy like ours can go through such a difficult time is the fall the fact that we live in a sinful and fallen world that is very good at making wonderful and life-bolstering things but things that are also imperfect and capable of periodic collapse and it's not god who made them and it's not god who's even the causal agent of having them fall it is us that's why now once we established this last week however we then started a little exercise in further trying to delve maybe even more pointedly into what god might be up to and here's the key in allowing our fallenness to show its ugly face at this time and in this place right in other words i asked that fictitious question that some of you might ask well, it's not fictitious, it's real, and that is, well, Jamie, if God is 100% sovereign, if a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will, and God knew this was going to happen and even allowed it to happen with his, in his sovereignty, why? What might he be up to in allowing our fallen world to be like this? And so we started asking that question. And we started looking at a list of four things. And it's very important that I remind you of our perspective or angle in taking, as we're looking at the answers to this question. And the angle was this. Do you remember this? If the shoe fits, wear it. If the shoe fits, wear it. So we established very clearly that none of us knows for sure and precisely what God is up to because we're not God. But we do have a book, the Bible, that does tell us what God has been up to in history past at times in allowing a fallen world to create havoc in our lives. In other words, it gives us some reasons as to why God has historically allowed fallen things to happen to fallen people. And we're looking at those things saying, well, maybe they might apply today if the shoe fits, wear it, right? So I say that to you so that none of you go away saying, Jamie says this is what God is up to. Because I don't know. I mean, it could be that this is what God is up to. I think, quite frankly, out of these four things, that I see him up to these things. But they're what the Bible says. You in your own life, in assessing your own life, as well as in assessing our church and society, need to say, do you think this is what God is up to as well? Because it very well could be. And so the first thing we noted is that many times God allows this fallen world to rear its ugly head in order to convict us of sin, right? In order to shake us so that we might see some of the sin in our lives that are keeping us from Him and all that He wants us to be. And in this case, with our economy, we name the sin greed. And we don't need to recap all that we talked about with greed, but simply remember that greed is very real. The Bible talks about it a lot. And human beings are generally susceptible to it because we're fallen in our nature. And obviously, Americans can struggle with greed because of our incredible prosperity and focus on material things. And we even gave you a remedy for greed. And you can get the CD or go on our website and check that out if you want so that if the shoe fits, you can easily wear it. And what I want to do in our time remaining here this morning is continue our list of things that the Bible says that many times God is up to in allowing tough times to hit us. So here's the second thing. You ready for this? And that is provision for those who trust Him. Provision for those who trust Him. And all i got to tell you is that this is all over the Bible. I mean, it's like everywhere. The simple fact that God allows this fallen world to act so fallen so that we would look to Him, depend on Him, learn to trust Him and not ourselves for our daily needs. Or put more simply, God allows fallen things to happen so that He might show Himself as a God of provision for His people whom He wants to see, to know that and to live like that. Now, I want you to look at me at one of the most powerful and clear descriptors of this in the Bible. If you brought a Bible, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 19. And we're going to look at just mainly verse 19. And this is one of the most powerful, clear statements on the fact that God wants to be a God of provision in your life and even how He allows fallen things to happen uh, that you can find in the New Testament. So, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, it's up here on the screen for you. It says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So notice three things that this passage and the surrounding context here makes clear, folks. First, it's obviously telling us that for those who look to and depend on God and his son Jesus, he's going to provide for us and meet our needs, right? I mean, it's exactly what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 6 in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? When he was, used the object lessons of things around him, and he said, you know, look at the birds of the air. They're not worried about God providing for their needs. And look at these flowers. They're dressed more beautiful than Solomon ever was, and they're not worried about God meeting their needs. And he said, you shouldn't worry about God meeting your needs because he loves you and he's going to take care of you. And then Jesus capped it off by saying, oh, you of little faith, right? In other words, trust him. Depend on them. If he's gonna take care of a sparrow for crying out loud, he can take care of you. If he's gonna take care of a flower that's gonna be here today and gone tomorrow, he can take care of you. He's saying that God is a God who provides for the needs of those who trust him. And that's exactly what Philippians uh, 4 is saying here. That if we look to and depend on God in Jesus, he says he's gonna take care of us and provide of us, provide for us. Now, we're not done yet, though. Let's understand this even more clearly. Look at this passage again, Philippians 4, and notice a second thing that God is making very clear here, and that is that the promise is for provision of our needs as opposed to our wants, right? Ooh, and you're saying, now we're getting somewhere. It talks about needs as opposed to wants. Clearly says He'll supply every need of yours. It's fascinating, folks, in the original language that the Bible was written in, that the New Testament was written in, which is Greek, this is the Greek word kreia, and it literally means that which is necessary, that which is required in order to live life. The key words there being necessary and required. It's fascinating. This is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2 verse 45 in describing how the very first Christian church pooled all their financial and material resources together in kind of like a communal fashion. I don't know if you remember this or not. And then it says, and I quote, And they distributed the proceeds to all as anyone who had need. Again, that same word here, kreia, that appears in Philippians 4. So in Acts 2, with that first century church, you know, they they all had so many people, as we're going to see in a minute, that came to Christ in one day, like 3,000 of them, and they all had these incredible needs around them. I mean, talk about a tough economy. They decided all to give very generously and radically, and they pooled their stuff together, and then they distributed it out, as the Scripture says, to anybody who had need. As I was focusing on that word need this week, I, I, I thought some silly thoughts. I thought, you know... I'll bet you that, that there was somebody back then who, who maybe thought, you know, I'm driving this really nice 31 A.D. chariot and, you know, and I was at the dealership the other day and, and I saw these really cool 33 A.D. chariots, you know, and, and maybe I ought to go ask the apostles, you know, to dip into that communal fund, but I don't think they would have done that do you, not for something like that, not for upgrading your model of chariot, Or I thought, you know, there might have been some women back then who had been shopping in Jerusalem and they saw these really nice designer togas in the window. You know, and they're thinking, ooh, that's a much nicer toga than the one I have right now. I should go to the apostles and ask them if they'll, you know, give me some of that communal scratch so that I can go buy that toga. And think about it. What would have happened if the chariot guy and the toga lady went to them and said, you know what, can I have some of this communal money for these needs in my life? What do you think they would have said? No! They would said, you don't get it. This isn't about wants. Those are wants. This is about needs. Don't you remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? We're talking about food and basic clothing. And the promise, the provision is, God is going to provide for your needs. He's in the habit of doing that. Which simply means that there might be some of us here today, if not many of us, who need to realize that as you trust God, through this very, very difficult time, He has promised to provide for you and meet the needs in your life, but you might need to make a distinction between needs and wants. In other words, you might need to rethink your theology. And now get this, start thinking in terms of provision rather than prosperity. I know that's hard for me to say to you, but I really think that this is an opportunity for many of us in our lives to start jumping off the bandwagon of prosperity which might come, might not come, and start realigning our thinking when it comes to God in terms of the fact that He has promised provision. I mean, don't get me wrong, folks. Prosperity is certainly not wrong. It's just that it's not the promise. No matter what the TV preachers tell you, I'm telling you, the Bible never promises that God is going to make everyone prosperous. Not at all, but it does promise that for those who trust Him, He will provide for you. Do you see how that works? You know, to me it's so painstakingly clear that God has not promised prosperity to everybody. Because if God promised prosperity to everybody who would trust Him and follow Him, then why was Paul the Apostle not prosperous? Why were none of the twelve disciples not prosperous? Why wasn't Jesus prosperous? I mean, think about it. There were so many godly men and women in the Bible who never experienced prosperity, and yet they trusted God with everything in them. And then to be sure, there were some who followed God and followed Christ that were prosperous. I mean, Joseph of Arimathea, we have every indication, was prosperous. Cornelius was prosperous. I mean, there's definitely some that were and some that weren't. And so what we learn from that is that God might prosper you, He might not, but the promise is for provision. And the reason that this is so important is that our country is coming off a significant window of prosperity. I mean unmatched in the history of the world. And now we're in some real lean times. And maybe we're going to enter into prosperity once again in the coming years. Who knows? My guess is that we will. But what a great opportunity, in the meantime, for you and me to trust God, focus on His promise for provision, and see Him move in unmistakable ways in our lives because that's what god has been up to historically during very difficult lean times and my god will supply every need of yours according to his riches in christ jesus it's a powerful truth but it's not even done there yet notice the third thing you want to realize about this passage here in Philippians, and that is that in the context here of Philippians 4, it assumes that the church, meaning you and me, will be front and center in being used by God as vehicles of his provision. It's true. In fact, look at the verse right before verse 19 here. Look at verse 18 of Philippians 4. This is so revealing. Paul says that I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, and get this, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then Paul goes on to talk about this famous verse, verse passages in verse 19 where he says, and God has supplied all my needs. Don't miss linking God's provision with the fact that the church in Philippi sent him some gifts for the meeting of his daily needs. That's how God provided for Paul. Very similar to what happened in Acts 2, where they had people who had a need for provision in their lives. God said he will meet that need, and he used the church to provide for those needs. You and I. God's plan over the years has been to use you and me in being vehicles of his grace in providing for those who call out to him and trust him. That's how He wants to move among us. And this is so cool, guys, when you see this happen. It really is. It's just so humbling and, and drawing one to God, it's almost hard to explain. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email from Ron Erickson who heads up the finances of this church. And I don't know if you guys know, most of you do, but at the end of our fourth Sunday of every month, we usually take up an elder's offering at the end of the service, which is a second offering that day. And it's not a double dip or anything like that. It's simply an offering that is devoted 100% to the needs, the physical and tangible needs of those in our church, in our community. So Ron was sending me out an email saying, Jamie, we're close to the end of the fiscal year here. It ends at the end of June. And it's looking like there has been a record year here at Scottsdale Bible Church that by the end of June we will have brought in and distributed over $300,000 through our elders fund alone to those in need in our community and in our church. And I'm sitting in my office going, $300,000. And just so you know, we're talking about rent, food, electricity, gas, car. I mean, that's what that money goes toward. And everybody who comes in for need meets with a pastor or a lay leader for prayer and counsel. In fact, I was working with one family recently and I got to tell you, it was so amazing. They called me on Good Friday after we've helped them three or four times recently and they have some real tumultuous things going on in their lives. And the father called me and with a shaky voice, he just said at the end of the conversation, I just got to let you know, I am so grateful to Scottsdale Bible Church. He said, if it wasn't for Scottsdale Bible Church, I think I'd be a spiritual casualty. He says, I really do. I was about ready to give up on God. But then God brought me to you guys and you guys have helped me in such tangible ways. that He said this, he said, it has drawn me back to God. That's how God works. You see, he uses his church as a provision to meet needs so that he might show himself as a God of provision to those who are about ready to give up. To those who thought, I just don't know what God's doing. Why is all this stuff happening to me? And God comes along and says, let me show you who I am, and how good I can be to you by providing for your daily needs. And folks, don't miss, He uses you and me in the process of doing that. And the stories that we hear are powerful. And by the way, this is just the elders fund. I mean, add to that the fact that our missions fund, which is about 1.3 million, supports multiple agencies involved in the frontline meeting of needs, as well as two villages in Tanzania. And then you got our youth ministry, our women's ministry, our men's ministry, our counseling ministry, our, our enrichment classes, our hearty souls, our pastoral care. Then I was thinking, then you have many, many in this church that are involved in other Christian groups with their time and money, like neighborhood ministries and CFCA and other things. And you can see how God uses powerfully the church as a primary agent for the provision of, for other people. And so look up here on the screen and track where we've come from, just in this one powerful little promise here in Philippians 4.19. We see that God provides as we trust and depend on Him, that there's a difference between provision and prosperity, that it's about provision, though prosperity might come, the promises for provision. And then the primary vehicle who God wants to use is you and me. And all I can say, folks, is what an opportunity we have at this time in our lives, to trust Him for His provision or to be used by Him in His provision for others. Either way, seeing God move unmistakably in the lives of others. Now, What could God be up to in responding to our current economic crisis? He could be calling you to a deeper level of dependence on Him, dependence that does nothing but draw you closer to Him and allow you to love others in a totally Jesus-like way. So if the shoe fits, wear it. And i got to believe that the shoe fits for a lot of us on this one. Now, we're fast running out of time this morning, so I want to quickly share with you a couple of other things that God has been up to many times in allowing a fallen world to display its fallenness. And so here is the third thing, and many of you are going to like this, and that is reaching the lost evangelism. That's right, uses times like this to reach the lost, or evangelism. So you got conviction of sin, provision of our needs, and now reaching the lost. That's many times what God is up to in times like these. You know, I mentioned earlier the uh, book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and what happened on the day of Pentecost. It's a fascinating progression that the book of Acts goes through from that point on, because that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was really a, a change day for the church in Jerusalem at that time. I mean, the day started out with about 130 plus different believers, it says, and then they had 3,000 people come to Christ on the day of Pentecost. I mean, let that settle in a minute. We think we got growth problems sometimes here, you know, and I'm thinking, man, imagine if Scottsdale Bible Church got 10, 20 times bigger just in one weekend. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. And these weren't casual believers. It says that they were meeting in the temple courts to hear the teaching. They were meeting from house to house, breaking bread. They had to get this communal fund together. I mean, you got Jerusalem with now thousands of people running around all excited about their new find faith in Christ. And so let me read for you, look up here on the screen, what happens a few weeks after this in Acts chapter 8 on another particular day. This is fascinating. It says in Acts 8 verse 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church, against these 3,000 plus people in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So pause right there. And so notice that there this great persecution broke out, and it scattered all these believers. And you got to believe that they were asking, what is God up to, right? I mean, again, just like us, difficult economy, tough times hit. For them, this was massive persecution so that they got scattered from their homes and their families to Judea and Samaria, which was like anywhere between 50 and 100 miles away. So it would be like us being scattered up to Sedona and Flagstaff. And you got to ask you believe they were asking God, Why? Why would you allow this, God? And the answer is simple. Look at what it goes on to say in verse 4 of Acts chapter 8. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Whoa! preaching the word and it is at this point that the book of acts takes a radical turn because at this point we read about philip and the ethiopian eunuch where he leads him to christ and baptizes him and then we read about saul the great persecutor of the church becoming a christian and then peter leads cornelius the gentile to christ and then paul begins one of three missionary journeys and we say oh So God allowed a fallen world to rear its ugly head in the form of persecution to get his followers in the right place so that they might get the word out of Jesus' love and grace to more people. And you say, precisely. And so in following our pattern of if the shoe fits, wear it, we simply have to ask ourselves, could it be that God is allowing a time like this, complete with tough economic times, in order to cause a spiritual search, thirst in people, as well as a shaking of some of us, in order to make connections so that more people might be reached for Christ who don't know Him. Could it be that God uses times like this, even allows them, so that His Word might go out in a more broad and effective manner? And I think so. Now, Ellison Research did a, a fascinating study last year on Americans to try to find out in our very multicultural, diverse society um, how well we're connected with each other. In other words, how many people know other people who are not really a part of their everyday world and their everyday likes and dislikes. And uh, I thought the, the results were fascinating. Let me read this for you. The percent of Americans who have never known a Buddhist, for instance, is 59%. So almost two-thirds of us ha- have never known a Buddhist. Percent of Americans who have never known a Muslim, 46%. So almost half of us have never known a Muslim. This one I don't think counts for Phoenix. The percent of Americans who have never known an undocumented immigrant is, uh, well, they say it's 54%, and i got to believe that's a tad lower in this town. Um, but moving on, a, uh, a percent of Americans who have never known a homeless person, okay, 45%. I thought this one was the most revealing. The percentage of Americans who have never known an evangelical Christian. All right, what do you think it is? An evangelical Christian, which whether you like it or not, if you know Jesus, that's you. And uh, it's 40%. 40% of your friends don't know you, is what it's saying there. Or 40% of the people around you, maybe not your friends, but 40% don't know an evangelical Christian. They don't know you. I laughed at this one. I thought of Barry Asmus. Uh, the number of percentage of Americans who have never known a political liberal. You ready for this one? Twenty-five percent. Wow. Uh, percentage who have never known a political conservative. Let's just be fair. Twenty-four percent. Percent of Americans who have never known somebody who's been in prison. Fifteen percent. And the percentage of Americans who have never known what they consider a wealthy person. Twelve percent. You know, when I when I read these stats, you know, I thought to myself. I thought, you know, we see ourselves as such a melting pot, unified culture. And and I guess in in some ways we are. But culture over the last decade has gotten more and more divisive. Have you noticed that? I I mean, we're we're fighting over a lot of different things. We have the war in Iraq and and partisan politics is becoming huge once again and all of that. And the danger, though, for you and I is that we then only hang out with people who think like us. Is that we only hang out with those that we kind of have an affinity with. And before you know it, we're not really getting the word out to those who might need it most. And the question you have to ask yourself is, could it be that God is allowing a time like now to shake us, to create a thirst in others so that connections might be made? And I think that very well could be true. I love how Tim Keller said it. Many of you know Tim. He's a pastor in new york city written some great books his one of his more recent books is called the prodigal god look up here on the screen he says properly understood christianity is by no means the opiate of the people remember that famous phrase opiate of the people he says it's more like we're the smelling salts and i like that we're the smelling salts in other words when we enter into somebody's life as the salt and life of christ loving them unconditionally and then having the guts to share a verbal witness with them as to the hope we have in Christ, God says that's the smelling salts. It's designed to wake them up. It's designed to convict them of their sin, which might make them feel bad. They might not like you for a while, but hopefully it's designed to draw them to Christ, to help them see their need for them. We're the smelling salts of God's fragrance of Christ. And folks, what you simply need to know, is I'll be very positive about this, is that I'm seeing this happen. I mean, if you wonder if the shoe is fit, I think it's happening. Clearly and inarguably, God is moving in the hearts and minds of many in this church and across the nation in drawing them to Him, many of them for the first time for salvation through faith in Christ. And much of it is a direct result of people getting thirsty for God and then those who are also willing to share their faith. I don't know if you guys remember, back, back in February, I did a three-week series on evangelism toward the end of January and culminated the first week of February. And at the end of it, I, I did an old-fashioned altar call. Do you guys remember that? Freaked some of you out. Like, you thought, where am I, like Mississippi or something like that? You know, you thought, the guy's doing an altar call. And I did it because there are times when we need to get up and move our bodies to also show where our soul and our heart is. And that's the simple uh, logic behind an altar call. So I said, "Hey, anybody who wants to receive Christ for the first time, or if you want to recommit your life, come on down, right?" And uh, we called a lot of you down. And uh, I, I don't, I'm not a numbers guy. I think that's really shallow, so I don't keep track of that stuff. And we had all of you guys grab a bookmark. Well, One of our staff afterward, this is so ingenious, took the leftover bookmarks. And she knew how many there were beforehand, okay? So unless a bunch of children robbed them or something, she thought, hmm, simple math. Let's figure out how many people accepted Christ, how many people recommitted their lives to Christ. And then she gave me the report. I did not ask her for this, okay? She sent this to me, but it was very encouraging On that single day, 37 people made first-time commitments to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 255 people rededicated their lives to Him and laid it down that day. Is that not so cool in your church? I mean, that's what happened. And that's just on one day. And then I get an email from Steve Erickson who runs our Spiritual Formation Ministries and he said this just a few weeks later. He said, I just want to let you know that Dave Otto and I had the honor of baptizing 19 people this past Sunday in the town center, mostly from class 100. Many of these baptisms came as the result of a recent profession of faith where people coming back to the Lord and now taking their faith seriously praise God for what He is doing among us. And then Darian Bennett, the head of our men's ministry, took me out. To lunch. Well, I took him out to lunch this week. Anyways, we had lunch this week, and I was talking to Darian, and, and he said to me, "You know, Jamie, there isn't a month that goes by that at least two or three people don't visibly accept Christ in our ministries. I hear that in our youth ministry, I hear that in our women's ministry, and I think to myself, what if this is just the start? What if this is just the inkling of God doing something very profound among His people here at Scottsdale Bible Church?" But what if this is the start of him using this downturn in the economy to draw others to himself? So he convicts of sin. He provides for those who trust him. He reaches the lost. And one other thought I'd like to share with you, I've actually saved the best for last, of what many times God does in our lives in allowing tough things to enter in like a downturn economy. And it's simply this, so that we might become men and women of prayer. So that we might become men and women of prayer. Because the simple logic is, is that most of us don't pray near enough and we know it. And so could it be that God allows tough times to hit so that we might follow our knees and say what? And look to Him in prayer. I love 1 Thessalonians five seventeen through 18. It couldn't be more clear. It says, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So track the logic there. Pray without ceasing, which I think means pray all the stinking time, right? That's what it's saying. Pray without ceasing. And then it says, when you pray, give thanks. Why? Because what's ever happening to you is the will of God. So add all of that up. It's saying that God is sovereign. He's in control of your life. Nothing happens to you that He hasn't allowed. So He allowed this, and we're to thank Him in this circumstance, not for it. Do you see the difference there? Be kind of morose to thank God for all these bad things. But he says, in them, because I'm in them and I allow them, because I'm your Lord, I'm your Savior, I'm front and center, then you can thank me in them. And that leads to what? More prayer, more trusting Him, more obedience, more faithfulness. God allows difficult things to come into our lives so that we might pray. And the only question we could ask then is, well, what do we pray for? What specifically should we ask for God for in times like these? Let me just give you a quick list here. Because this is important stuff. Think about it. We pray for protection and provision. We already talked about provision for those in need. But you also know that we need to pray a hedge of protection about those who might not need provision right now that God would continue to provide for them and protect them during these all very hard, difficult times. Somebody said to me the other day, they said, you know, 8 9% unemployment. Well, hey, you know what? The positive thing is that we still have 91 92% of the people still employed. And I thought, well, yes, that's true, but tell that to the millions of people who are now unemployed. I mean, that's hardly a consolation to them. But I also thought this when he said that, I thought, I hope we're praying for that 91, 92% who still have a job, that God protects them, and that He protects their job, and that He continues to provide for them. pray for provision and protection for those around you. Pray for perseverance. That we might be faithful to God as followers of Him during these rough times and pray for others that they might persevere. Pray for faith and dependency that God would deepen our faith and draw us to Him either for the first time if we've seen or even once again. Pray for a generous spirit. We can't get enough of that today. Again, the tendency for some of us is when tough times hit, we pull in the belt and we get, as we saw last week, just a little bit greedy. And yet greed isn't going to help anything right now. It's a generous spirit. It's the widow's might that is needed more than ever, especially in and through the church. And so pray upon your church, a generous spirit. Pray for conviction, as we've talked about, that God would help us to see what He wants us to hear and see, both individually and as a nation, for this time in our lives. And finally, just pray for his movement. I love how Jim Symbala of the Brooklyn Tabernacle says that he says, "Fresh wind, fresh fire." Isn't that awesome? Pray fresh wind, fresh fire, God's movement upon His people, upon you during this time. There's so much we can pray for with God and the economy. And so let's just pray. Let's pray like we've never prayed before. Uh, And and to kind of end our service on on a good note, here's what I want to do in our few moments we have remaining. I want to call up two of our pastors right now to lead us in prayer. I'm going to ask Bob Kane and Ray Barton, many of you know them, to come up right now. Bob is the head of our uh, second half ministries, which works with those who are in second half of life, and then Ray Barton is part of our pastoral care ministries. And many of you know both Ray and Bob, they are long-time elders and leaders here in our church. And I've asked both of them to come up here and to lead us in a time of prayer, and I've asked them simply to pray for God and the economy and for all of us and the things that we've talked about today is a special blessing upon us. And then when they're done, uh, we're going to take up an elder offering, which, again, is just that time of month where we do that. And during that time, we're going to be sung to, and then I'll come up and close us. So, Ray, Bob, God bless you guys for being up here. Would you please pray for us?
1: Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we have learned this morning from Pastor Jamie, it's so wonderful to know when we go through these difficult times, as many of us are experiencing right now, that we are in the, we are absolutely under the control of a sovereign God who loves us and has provided for us, one who has never, ever let us down. And it's so wonderful to be able to just have that complete faith and trust in you as we walk each day, asking for your daily provision. And Father, as a church, as we've learned, uh, we trust that as people experience and interact with our church, that they will see a church that follows the principles that we've learned this morning from your word, and that they will see that we are a church of faith and that we are a church who has a desire to not only serve you, but to touch the hearts and lives of those that we come in contact with. And Father, they will see in our faith, in our daily walk, in our trust, that they will say, well, why? Why do you folks... Have these, uh, have this kind of faith during these difficult times. And then we can share with them because we know you as our Lord and our Savior. Because we look forward to the days ahead when we will, uh, rejoice with you in heaven and that they can take and join us there if they will only accept Christ as their Savior and Lord. Help us, Lord, to be that kind of a church, faithful, yes, believing in our heart that you're going to provide for us. We know that you will, but also it will be a church that will be willing at all times to tell others about you and to uh, just rejoice with them as they come to know you as our Lord and Savior as we do. And so as a church, this morning we humble ourselves before you. We thank you, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts that we do serve a sovereign God and that we can trust you, as we've learned this morning, for your daily provision and your watch care over us. And so to that end, we say praise you this morning. We thank you. From the bottom of hearts again, Lord, we can't say enough. And so, in closing, now as we turn it over to Bob, we just say praise your holy name.
2: Lord, Father, as Jamie has so clearly pointed out this morning, we have very, very few true needs in our life. But, Father, uh, at the same time, we are a needy people. We need you, Lord. We need the peace and tranquility that only you can provide, especially in times where there are some challenges in our economy and in our nation. Lord, we know that you have a plan. We know that you love us even more than we love ourselves. And you're going to cause that plan to come to fruition, Lord. And we just thank you and trust you completely. So, Lord, I just ask that uh, during this time uh, we take heed of the things that Jamie has told us. Lord, to recognize that perhaps there is some sin in our lives. Lord, that we need to confess that, and I do, Father. I confess that I've been faithless at times when I know, looking back, you have been faithful. Lord, I know that, that there are many times that I've started my day without turning to you in prayer lord i need to pray more faithfully more consistently lord i'm sure there are others in this room who think the same way and father uh, i just again rejoice in the fact that you are the great provider provider of all of our spiritual needs lord and father you care not about our wants but you do meet our needs, and we thank you. So, Lord, I pray that all the things that Jamie has shared with us today will penetrate our hearts, that we'll be stronger as we walk out of here, stronger not in our own strength, but stronger in our faith in you. And, Lord, these things we ask in the perfect, the precious, the holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.